If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Good afternoon. Welcome to Hamilton Today. I'm Shona Thompson in for the vacationing Scott Thompson. He returns tomorrow. Coming up on the show today, we are going to help you try to get through this storm. Uh, In case the power goes out, we've got uh, one of the people from Electric Utilities that will be joining us in a little while to help us uh, deal with that situation should that be happening. There is at least some ice accretion. that is, That's a buildup of ice, by the way. Uh, that may be happening with this storm system, and that usually is when uh, there are widespread power outages. So we're going to help you try to get through that part of it. We'll also give you the latest weather forecast uh, because this system, you know, as with a lot of them, you know, there are all sorts of moving parts, if you will, uh, not necessarily a reference to the winds. But one of the things that we always track is uh, northeast winds because that tends to up the uh, the totals in terms of precipitation and in this case snowfall and I so we'll try to keep you up to date with all of that that's coming up just in the next half hour or so we're also going to be touching base with a tenants group of an apartment building in central Hamilton they have been without water since before New Year's And apparently they feel pretty let down by the city of Hamilton. We'll check in with them and see what's happening. We'll be talking about the grandparent scam to help make sure that you don't become a target. And uh, we're going to be talking with two people who, you know, out of the best intentions, fell victim uh, to the grandparent scam. A special event is coming up at Mohawk College, and it's tried to help prevent human trafficking. Uh, some help if you are hoping to move into the green economy is also on the way. But, you know, a lot of people need some credentials in order to be able to do that and take some new jobs in their career in a new direction. Well, Mohawk College is one of the organizations that is helping people out with that over the next 18 months or so. We had a chance to talk about the events in Ukraine yesterday with President Joe Biden's trip to Poland, the surprise trip to Ukraine on Monday, and Russian President Vladimir Putin's response, including suspending participation in a nuclear treaty. But it also should make us more aware of our own sovereignty in the North. Canada's military says it has tracked and stopped Chinese surveillance in Arctic waters. In an interview this morning with CNN, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie called China an increasingly disruptive power. We think that also when it comes to China, we will challenge China when we ought to and we will cooperate with China when we need to. So obviously when it comes to issues over our Arctic within uh, our uh, maritime borders or any form of foreign interference, we will be clear and that's how we will address this issue. She also says it's important for Canada and the U.S. to be prepared to deal with any future attempts. The security of Canadians is extremely important and obviously protecting our own sovereignty and our own uh, territorial integrity. In that sense, that is why the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, decided to shoot down a first balloon over over Canada. And that's also why I summoned the Chinese uh, ambassador in Ottawa to make sure to send a clear message. Now, when it comes to the North and the Arctic, in particular the North Pole, which has always been considered Canadian territory, Russia has been making incursions, not so much because they want the North Pole, they want what's under it, natural resources. And now China is making inroads as well, kind of elbowing in on our territory. So it's uh, particularly disturbing when you hear things like Russia and China are cooperating a lot more these days. It also makes me wonder why we wind up with that very at the very least, 
toxic narcissists in power to make decisions that the rest of us wind up suffering for. I remember hearing one world leader describe himself as a man of destiny, which made me cringe because he wasn't in charge of a country that one would say was a world power at the time. And because when someone is convinced that they have a role to play in history, it usually means they've got to come up with some way to make that mark. And other people pay for that. Vladimir Putin is said to have now instituted a draft in his country to have soldiers to continue the fight in Ukraine. And in his speech yesterday, Putin said is said to not have mentioned how the war in Ukraine is going from his perspective in the two hours that he was speaking. Some people found that particularly telling. All this as we approach the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. Hopefully, there won't be a second anniversary. That kind of brings us to today's uh, Twitter poll question. Do you agree with the idea of expanding the use of private clinics for some minor medical procedures like cataract surgery, CT scans, and knee replacements? Pretty simple options there. Simply yes or no. You can vote at 900CHML.com on Twitter. You can also send me an email at Thompson at 900CHML.com. And my Twitter handle is at Shona Talk. You're listening to Hamilton Today on 900 CHML. I'm Shona Thompson in for Scott Thompson. Well, I guess, you know, the best advice right now is hunker down. Uh, the weather has arrived and it's going to get even nastier very soon. Joining us now is global news meteorologist Ross Hull. Uh, his busy season, <laughs> now that the system is moving over us. Ross, what can we expect and exactly when can we expect it? Well, good afternoon. Yeah, it's uh, it's already started around uh, the Hamilton area where we're starting to experience some snow and it's blowing around. And I think uh, there's a couple of things uh, that we're working with here is the fact that we've been uh, sort of uh, not having experienced winter weather over the last week or so. It's been relatively mild for much of this winter, in fact, and we've had these spurts of winter. But this system is going to be different in the sense that uh, it's going to bring snow and that's what we'll see initially. And that's what we're seeing out there right now. But it's that messy mix of precipitation that we are especially uh, concerned about, uh, a mix or changeover to ice pellets and uh, to freezing rain, and along with some gusty winds um, around Hamilton, southern Niagara, heading uh, west uh, into southwestern Ontario, uh, there's the risk of uh, some significant freezing rain, which could cause some power outages with this system. Okay, so if I'm hearing you correctly, we're getting the snow right now. That's going to change over to ice pellets and then freezing rain? Yeah, exactly. So if you can picture the atmosphere in sort of a a three-dimensional perspective, uh, we've got the cold air at the surface. A lot of the systems so far this year, uh, they've turned over to rain and, and, you know, it hasn't been snow. It's been rain or rain-snow mix. Uh, Just looking at conditions at the airport right now, we are at minus three. So this is not going to be a rain event. Uh, What we do have is a warm air, a layer of warm air aloft. And how thick that warm air is, uh, is basically depends on, is dependent on the type of temperature we see. So the thicker that warm layer is, if you can visualize uh, a snowflake in the upper levels of the atmosphere, it falls through that warmer layer and it melts. But then as it falls to the ground, it becomes super cooled and freezes on contact. I'm sure many of us have experienced this when uh, you get outside and your windshield is basically a block of ice or it's very slippery and uh, it accumulates on power lines and trees. So that warm air aloft is going to start to get 
you know, thicker and deeper as we move through the day. So we'll move from snow, ice pellets, so uh, it doesn't melt entirely. And then when we get that warm nose of air aloft, that's when the snow melts or that, that precipitation, that piece of precipitation melts and you get freezing rain. And that is really the most dangerous type of precipitation because uh, the ice pellets are a mess. It's, it's, you know, tough to shovel. Uh, but it's that freezing rain that, uh, coats power lines and trees and sidewalks and roads and uh, all this stuff that just makes it uh, particularly dangerous. So that's what we're uh, we're concerned about. Now, I don't think Hamilton will see the most ice accretion, but again, head to Southern Niagara along the shores of Lake Erie, uh, possibly up to 20 millimeters of ice in some spots. Around Hamilton could be 5, 10 millimeters of ice, which is not necessarily enough to completely decimate power lines in the power grid, but it's enough to do some damage and to cause some power outages. Yeah. Um, I'm not expecting a, a time like 6.42 p.m., but is there a ballpark range for uh, when the uh, the ice might actually come? Well, it is my job to get it right down to the second, but <laughs> to the minute. Uh, however, yeah, this is, this is what we're looking at. So it's going to be snow likely uh, for the next few hours, mixing in with some ice pellets. Then we're expecting that freezing rain to start to move in uh, by likely after 9, 10 o'clock is when we'll start to see that really pick up. And we'll likely see three, four, five hours of it uh, lasting into the early morning hours on Thursday. The good news is the heaviest precipitation is not going to stick around into Thursday morning. So we're basically experiencing the brunt of this system now and moving forward into the early morning hours. By the morning commute, I'm not expecting a whole lot of precipitation, but of course it's going to be slippery out there. Temperatures are not rising above the freezing mark. We should be staying uh, below the freezing mark. So uh, it's going to be icy out there and you'll have to give yourself some extra time to get around. But thankfully there won't be a whole lot of precipitation falling for the morning commute tomorrow. Well, and and uh, to that point, and I think it's uh, one that's well taken, because it's going to be below freezing, um, any ice that's out there is going to be hanging around at least for a little while. That's right. And it's going to cause this messy mix of uh, wintry cement, if you will, because we're going to see uh, first that layer of snow, then likely some ice pellets. Now, it's important to mention trying to time out that warm air aloft I told you about, which sort of basically decides the precipitation type, can be very difficult. So uh, I'm giving you how things are looking right now, but you're going to have the ice pellets on top of that, then likely the freezing rain later this evening. And again, that is going to freeze. So I guess any, any advice I can offer right now is if you can, and of course safely, uh, head out there and clear whatever precipitation does fall in all these different stages. Because if you just wait until tomorrow morning, uh, it's going to be pretty messy and pretty difficult to, to clear all of that out. Yeah, one thing I can tell you is happening right now, because I was just taking a look out uh, the window as I was listening to you speak. Um, I know it's really bad news when you've got uh, horizontal rain that's falling. We got horizontal snow right now. Yeah, and uh, that is one of the factors here that I didn't bring up was the fact that we are going to see some gusty winds. So uh, that's the concern when you get precipitation like snow, like what you're experiencing right now, uh, that reduces visibility. And that's uh, that's not pleasant. Ice pellets either. But couple freezing rain with strong winds, then you have those unstable branches, unstable power lines. And that's why we're particularly concerned about that possibility of power outages, because uh, coupling those, those strong winds, and you really don't need a lot. I mean, and these are going to be pretty gusty, 50 plus kilometers per hour, likely 50 to 70 overnight you know, tomorrow morning. Uh, that's the concern here too. So a lot of components to this storm. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be intense. But thankfully, at least it will be short lived. In, in in the past, when we've experienced ice storms, some of these storms have arrived in waves, like the one that hit uh, the GTA back in 2013. That was a couple of waves of low pressure. Uh, the main one with this one is going to be tonight into early tomorrow morning. A bit of precipitation tomorrow, uh, but not expecting as intense as tonight. Yeah, we've only got about 45 seconds left um, before we have to break for news. But Ross, I was wondering, you know, um, the winds are from the northeast, correct? Because in my experience anyway, being in Hamilton, um, that's always sort of upped the snowfall amounts. That can, but in this case, because we don't have that cold layer aloft, for lake effect snow, you need uh, a certain uh, atmospheric profile. So you need that Arctic air aloft. In this case, we don't have that. We have the mild air aloft. So that is going to lead to the the piece of precipitation, that precipitation melting as it moves through that warmer layer. Now, initially, there could be a bit of enhancement uh, over the next couple of hours. I'm not saying there won't be heavy snow. There is the possibility of five, possibly 10 centimeters accumulating. And then it's going to be dependent on how much ice pellets, uh, how many ice pellets we see or the amount of the ice pellets along with the freezing rain. So that's what makes it a difficult forecast. Um, Head a little farther east out of the Hamilton area, this could be 10 to 15 centimeters of a messy mix of ice pellets and snow, but around Hamilton, uh, likely less snow, but more ice pellets and freezing rain. Ross, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your insight. Thank you. Stay safe. And you as well. Ross Hull is a meteorologist with Global News. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We heard from Global News meteorologist Ross Hull about the, well, all of the weather that is coming, part of which is a lot of ice. At least that's what they're expecting. So I thought it would be a good idea to check in with Electra Utilities to get some advice on what to do if your power should go out. And joining us now is Ashley Tregodchev of Electra Utilities. Ashley, thank you for joining us. I, I know you're going to be pretty busy, if not in the near future, certainly overnight. Yes, thank you so much for having me. So what should people do if the power does go out? Yes, so there. So let's uh, the impact of this weather condition on our infrastructure. So really the concern for us right now um, in this type of situation is freezing rain causes ice accretion which can weigh heavy on our power lines and, you know, bring down tree limbs or debris that could interfere with our equipment and infrastructure. So to stay safe, we want to advise customers to, you know, if you come across a down power line, please stay at least 10 meters away. Always ensure that the lines are energized. And in terms of safety, we want to remind our customers to um, keep your devices charged and also prepare an emergency uh, safety kit. So you can include in that things like um, bottled water, medicine, first aid supplies, flashlights, batteries, radio, um, canned food, um, and blankets. Um, you know, I, hopefully people have already done that because, uh, you know, it, it's, it's already upon us. Yeah, uh, it started to hit. Yeah, the, uh, the snow is certainly here. Um, yeah. The latest weather forecast that we got, Ashley, was that they're expecting that the ice is probably going to come into the Hamilton area around about 9 o'clock tonight. Um, is, there, is there something that people, uh, are, are there things that they should do now in order to prepare for what could be a power outage overnight? Yes, yeah, so just everything that I said, um, 
making sure that you have your preparedness kit ready, making sure your vehicle is uh, fueled and your devices are charged, and um, to stay warm as much as possible. Um, also, during an outage, let's say you do have one, we want to remind customers to view updates via our website. So at electorutilities.com, you can visit our outage map. Um, also, call us at one eight three three electra and um, follow us on Electra News on Twitter. We'll be posting constant updates throughout the night um, to advise customers about estimated restoration times. And, um, you know, if you do have an outage refrigerator doors closed and freezer doors closed unplug as many um, devices as possible this will help stabilize power in case of a power surge and like i said keep around extra blankets and layers of clothes how does electric utilities uh, prepare for a situation like this i mean we've known for a couple of days there was probably going to be an ice storm now it seems as though it is going to be happening later on tonight yes so we want to reassure customers that We've done everything we can to prepare for this storm. We have our system control center continuously monitoring um, weather forecasts and tracking it. Uh, We also have extra crews on standby ready to go and restore power throughout the night if needed. And um, there's things that we actually do all throughout the year to prepare for situations like these. So, for instance, we proactively invest in grid resilience. So, we invest around three million, three hundred million dollars in capital improvements to, you know, renew aging equipment and install new infrastructure, and this helps improve reliability in situations like these. And also, we invest five million in vegetation management. So, just to educate our customers, tree contact or trees growing too close to our power lines are severe safety hazards and can cause major power outages especially during high winds and storms. So we have a tree trimming program that operates all year long to protect our infrastructure and manage this vegetation growth. Ashley, you know, I don't think enough can be said in support of of the workers at uh, Electric Utilities and all utilities. They're the ones who have to go out in in the stuff that we're going to be staying home and trying to shield ourselves from. So, you know, certainly a a big hats off to them. But I'm wondering uh, for people who, you know, before you go to bed tonight, should people make sure that everything is off so there isn't a surge? Um, You know, just finding some ways to protect uh, not only yourself and your home, but uh, some of your electronics as well. Yes, so like I said, well, don't unplug anything until the power goes out. Um, We don't know how hard it's going to hit or where it's going to hit. It's kind of just only a matter of time. But like I said, follow our before, during, and after tips to help keep you safe. Okay, and that can be found on the Electric Utilities website. Exactly, and via our Electric News Twitter account. Okay, Ashley, thank you so much for taking some time out. I know you're probably getting a situation room ready over at Electric Utilities to uh, keep on top of, well, what's going to happen over the next uh, several hours and overnight. So thanks again for taking time for us. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope everyone stays safe.
Absolutely. Ashley Tregachev is with uh, Electra Utilities, uh, joining us on 900 CHML. And uh, just a, a couple of things to keep in mind. I mean, we've had other power failures uh, in and around the Hamilton area in years past. You know, when I started working here at CHML, there was that huge ice storm out in eastern Canada. And I was on one of the trucks that went out to uh, take uh, supplies there. Um, and I remember some of the things that people said were really helpful. Um, first off, as Ashley was talking about, you know, if the power goes out, make sure you don't open the fridge or the freezer door to try to keep uh, everything fresh uh, for however long this the power may be out for. And you should always have a, a three-day emergency supply kit handy uh, with some of the items that she was talking about. But something else that you can do is throw a comforter or a blanket or a sleeping bag over top of your, uh, your refrigerator and over top of your freezer. That will help insulate it a little bit more. Also get some big containers, plastic containers, fill them up with water now, put them in the freezer because that will freeze solid and that will help keep everything inside uh, from thawing out a little bit too soon. Uh, something else you may want to do, especially if you're in a high-rise building um, and if the water lines freeze, fill up a few buckets of water because if you have to go to the bathroom, quite frankly, that's going to be a really good tip. You may have to gauge whether or not it's a one bucket or a two-bucket job. Uh, just some news that you can use because there is the possibility that the power may go out tonight. Based on what Ross Hull was saying uh, earlier, it could be around 9 o'clock and overnight. So please stay safe. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The city of Hamilton is going to be taking a look at its relationship with Redeemer University in the wake of the death of Beckett Noble. Beckett was a student at Redeemer University, and they died by suicide last November. Several members of the Emergency and Community Services Committee felt, you know, the city should examine this relationship, including any contractual agreements that it may hold with Redeemer to ensure that the city's protocol for gender identity and gender expression, along with transgender and gender nonconforming persons, is followed. Here to discuss this further is Rebecca Banke, who is chair of the LGBTQ Advisory Committee for the City of Hamilton. Hi, Rebecca, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. I think it's kind of fitting that we're having this discussion as well on, on Pink Shirt Day. It just seems appropriate. Well, the trans community is one of the most discriminated against minorities in the city. At least that's what it says in the city's policy about this issue. I think if bullying or the treatment of others is a factor in, in what we think about today. I think you're right. It's very appropriate. Yeah. What is the city's protocol for gender identity and gender expression? So this is a document that was ratified by the city uh, some time ago, and it's been re-ratified several times since. It's about the city's commitment to a safe and respectful, inclusive environment for community members, especially those who are most discriminated against. It's supposed to cover contractual relationships with the city, employment, uh, employees, workplace relationships. It covers a lot, including the equity and inclusion policy, so it's pretty broad. Well, you know, it's interesting to me that if we have this protocol in place, how come that isn't automatically a filter for any contracts? Contract relationships can be really complicated. I mean, sometimes partnerships like CityLab are paid into by a variety of sources. And the question is, where does that oversight occur? It's really clear in an HR kind of relationship with an employer and an employee who are discrete individuals. But when the 
beneficiary is an institution, it becomes more complicated to enforce those policies, which is one of the reasons the advisory committee's recommendation got sent immediately to legal. But we were we were lucky that we had supportive counselors who said, and we want to pursue uh, a way that this can still happen, that we can see if there's room to uh to adjust things here, because even if it's not absolutely the obligation right now, I think ethically it should be the obligation to protect the citizens who are working in partnership with the city. Well, it would also seem to me that if the LGBTQ Advisory Committee made this recommendation and it automatically got sent over to legal, um, will somebody from the Advisory Committee be involved in the examination? Because it needs eyes from the community on the topic to make sure that it is in keeping with this protocol. I think you're right. Council's been doing a much better job uh, seeking us as an advisory body uh, with this new term of council. And it's exciting to see. I know there's a role for staff to take to bring back uh, recommendations or information to council. I don't want to interfere with that process, but they have suggested that they would like to continue to consult us as this moves forward. Uh, we're we're a consulting body and and while I'm the chair, I don't speak for the committee when we're not assembled in public, but it's our hope that we can continue to be a part of the conversation. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the uh, city's relationship with the LGBTQ Advisory Committee, because that certainly was some, something that was in the news a lot during the last part of the last council. And I know that some members of uh, the Advisory Committee are now sitting members of council. Um, and so I was wondering if you could speak to the change in relationship between then and now. Well, I, I will say uh, it feels like... They're listening in a different way than they were before. Um, my mentor and previous chair of our committee, Cameron, has been elected as councillor, and it was it was a different experience taking questions uh, from him in that that position. I, I'm grateful that we have more representation for a community in our city that is large and diverse. But I think the role of the advisory committee continues to be to bring perspective that it's not reasonable for council to have representative instances of. To, this is this is a chance to be able to listen to the voices of community, and that's what we're trying to bring forward in this conversation. I think this council's listening, but I still think there's lots of voices to uh, to bring to light. Well, and having this protocol, how long has there been a protocol to recognize and support gender identity and gender expression? Well, you know, I want to say 2016, um, but it might be it might be the year before that. I think it was part of the 2016. Dean's strategic plan, um, but the the most recent version of it was re-ratified again in 2019. So this is this has been around for a little while, and ultimately the policy protects the city. Uh, this is in accordance, you know, with the human rights that are federally protected, um, or pardon me, provincially protected, the Ontario Human Rights Code, and the city should want the this policy to be well implemented because the alternative is failing the citizens who live here and the employees and the people who interact with the city. And I would assume that part of the reason for this protocol is to protect and make sure that the, there is protection for all members of our community. Yeah. And sometimes the way you protect all members is with specific policies around uh, members who might have more complicated lived experiences. This is an instance of that. But this is about human rights. And we might look different or have different lives, but they're still lives worthy of flourishing. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, everyone in our community should be protected. I mean, if people from the LGBTQ community are paying into taxes, they deserve the same rights, privileges and protections as anybody else. And there are quite a few of us. We can be born into any family at any time. You just wait. (laughs) Uh, Very true. Uh, What are the next steps on this? And and, uh, how is the LGBTQ Advisory Committee uh, going to be keeping an eye on it? Well, in some ways, we've done our part. Uh, We put together a citizen committee report that cataloged the circumstance and made our recommendations. Those two recommendations have been brought to council. They were heard very clearly, and there's a conversation happening about it right now. When staff comes back with what they believe can be done forward, uh, I may be asked to speak to council again on the issues, and then we'll be able to take that conversation back to the advisory committee. In the meantime, we're working on preparations for Pride. We're trying to work with uh, HSR to see if we can have some stuff put on buses. I mean, the work continues in a lot of ways. Not everything is a depressing and tragic story, but they're all opportunities for change. Absolutely. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Rebecca Banke is the chair of the LGBTQ Advisory Committee for the City of Hamilton. The first and hopefully last anniversary of Russia's war in Ukraine is actually coming up on Friday. Vladimir Putin announced that Russia was changing its involvement in the START Treaty, which was the last major nuclear treaty it was involved with uh, in with the United States. Russia said today that it would be seeing a change in NATO's stance and a willingness for dialogue before it would consider returning to the treaty. Uh, with this happening, I wanted to talk to Oral Brown, who's a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Thank you for joining Joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Um, you know, with these situations and um, and with uh, diplomacy, as we've discussed before, and other opportunities that we've had to talk about these situations, you kind of look for the indicators um, of of what the dance is and what's going on. And Putin's speech, I thought, was very interesting. He, uh, you know, there's some discussion as to whether he was saying he was withdrawing from start or whether he was um, going to be suspending his involvement. Those are two slightly different things. And I'm wondering if uh, that is in part uh, due to what kind of translation from his original speech in Russian one was uh, was using. It was clear that he was not uh, ending uh, Russia's uh, involvement with the new start. He was suspending participation. Uh, It was not a matter of translation. It was a matter of tactics. And I think it is part of this larger approach of using nuclear blackmail, where he was suggesting, look, uh, you, especially in Western Europe, are very worried about nuclear conflict. If we don't have this new START treaty in place fully implemented, there will be a greater chance of it. So you better pressure the United States to make concessions if you want us to resume participation. Uh, He has tried nuclear blackmail throughout this conflict. It has not worked so far. He used it when uh, uh, Finland and Sweden first suggested that they would consider uh, applying for NATO membership. Uh, And those two countries, which had bent over backwards for decades to be accommodating to Russia and had concluded that Russia was an urgent, and major threat and they went ahead and applied uh, for NATO membership. So uh, I think this is part of a KGB tactic known as reflexive control. 
Well, and of course, uh, Putin's history and background uh, includes involvement in the KGB. Exactly. And uh, what this tactic that was developed over the years by the KGB is to play on the predilection of the target. So if uh, the target is inclined to worry about a particular uh, issue, emphasize that issue here, especially in Western Europe, but also around the world too. No one who is rational would like to see nuclear conflict. So he is playing on that. And uh, it is one of his manipulative tools. Uh, um, uh, it it uh, uh, assumes that uh, people in the West will think that this is only in, in the interest of the West. Well, being part of that treaty is as much in Russia's interest, which has a, a puny economy compared to the West, even just compared to United States, it's a vastly, vastly smaller economy. They can't really compete indefinitely. So it's very much in their interest also to be part of that treaty. So these kind of suggestions that uh, uh, the West would almost have to pay a kind of ransom money in concessions for Russia to come back into participation is a tactic. But that's a dangerous game to be playing. I mean, you can't keep threatening this. It is a dangerous game, but it is not a new game. Uh, let's not forget that we went through the Cold War. And during the Cold War, the Soviet Union uh, was a superpower. Russia is only a remnant of a superpower. And we collectively were able to deter the Soviet Union. There was a nuclear balance. It was called a balance of terror. We were able to provide deterrence. So uh, there's no reason why... Uh, Western deterrence should not work uh, as well now. This is not to say that any nuclear threat ought not, to, ought not to be taken seriously. It should be. But it's very different from saying that uh, the West should just cave in, uh, engage in craven policies, make concession after concession, endanger the survivability of Ukraine. Because we know what Vladimir Putin's ultimate goal is. If we look at the speech that he made, the State of the Union speech, he went full Soviet. Uh, it was like listening to the Brezhnev administration talking about the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. And the line back then and the line now is that there was no aggression on the part of the Soviet Union and now on the part of Russia. It was the Soviet Union and now Russia that uh, are the victims and that uh, they are responding to provocation, they are responding to immoral danger that is uh, confronting them, and that the local population that uh, Russia conquers welcomed them, which was not the case in Czechoslovakia and not the case uh, uh, in, in Ukraine, despite the fake uh, referendums that they held. And uh, Vladimir Putin also made uh, the statement that uh, Russia is to defend all the lands, the historical borders. Well, what were the historical borders of the Soviet Union? Well, the historical borders of the Soviet Union including, included Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Does that mean that the, they would be next? It included Moldova. We'll know, we know that Russia is exerting through this uh, frozen coffee in Transnistria where they have troops exerting an enormous amount of pressure on uh, on Moldova. If you go back to Imperial Russia, 
Poland was a part of the Russian borders. So where exactly does it stop? Well, that remains to be seen, and I'm afraid we have to end our discussion there for today. Oral Brown is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As you've been hearing in the news on CHML, there's a group of tenants of a building at the Delta in central Hamilton at 1083 Main Street East. They have been without water since before New Year's. That should, at the very least, be a public health issue, if not a property standards issue. They say there's really been no help for them so far. Joining us now is one of those tenants, David Galvin, who is also a member of ACORN, which is a tenants' rights group. Uh, David, uh, thank you for joining us on the program today. Well, uh, thank you, Shona, and thank you for having me. This is such an important story. Uh, So what is life like for you without water for nine weeks? Well, it's uh, it's a challenge. Uh, washing hands is difficult. Washing dishes is difficult. Uh, flushing the toilet requires, of course, filling the tank first with uh, with bottled water. Um, it's an inconvenience all around. Uh, I have been provided a motel room by the uh, property manager, uh, which I use only for showers. Well, you know, I can I can only imagine that the fear of you and your neighbors is if you move into the motel, you're not moving back into your apartment. Actually, one of our tenants was told that uh, he was told by the property manager that if he accepted the motel offer, he would be denied the uh, um, the ability to return to his apartment. His apartment would be torn apart in his absence and the safety of his belongings couldn't be guaranteed. Uh, and there was no guarantee even that uh, at what point he might be allowed to move back in, if ever. So under those circumstances, most of the people uh, turned down the motel offers, as you can well imagine they would. I uh, I took the offer, but I didn't re- relocate to the motel. I use it simply as a kind of add-on to my apartment. It's um, 15 minutes away by vehicle, and it also happens that I'm the only tenant remaining in the building who has a vehicle. So what is the landlord saying the problem is? What's the issue here? Um, The landlord has said from the start that they were not going to repair the pipes. Their story is that the pipes are so badly damaged by the cold snap we had at the end of December that repair is impossible and the only option is to replumb the whole building. Have you seen any proof that that is true? No, and I believe it to be a blatant falsehood. Um, so what's happened with the city? I, I know you feel pretty much abandoned by them. Um, you know, I, I'm I allowed to say the landlord is something of a jerk, but you know what? We expect landlords to be jerks, so there's nothing to see there. Like, move along. Uh, but when we turn to the city as vulnerable people, when we turn to the city that we thought would help us with this problem uh, and found that they have not helped us in the slightest... Uh, then that's that's where my anger really lies. It's directed at the, the city who um, haven't really helped us in this situation. We did have a bylaw um, inspection officer, a bylaw enforcement officer, over on December the 28th of last year, which is the day when the water went off, when the landlord turned the water off. Um, he did issue an order eight days later to eight days for him to issue an order for the landlord to get the water back on. 
He issued it under the property standards bylaw, which I think was the wrong bylaw to use. I think he should have used vital services instead. Uh, but uh, so January the 5th, the order was issued. The landlord then had a 14-day period to comply. Plus, because the order was mailed out rather than hand-delivered, there was five days added to that. So the landlord had 19 days to comply. During that time, the landlord filed an appeal of the order, uh, which was heard yesterday at City Hall. And and that's why it's made news again at this time. As I said off the top, this sounds also like a public health issue. Oh, I agree. Um, the inability to wash our hands properly, especially during a time when viruses are rampant in our environment, is a serious public health issue. There's also the issue of, you know, basic things like cleaning floors or walls or cleaning dishes. Uh, and, and for the other tenants, of course, who haven't accepted the motel rooms, they're facing the challenge of bathing in, in various ways. Well, and, and not to mention, you know, having to lug water all the way up to your apartment, uh, you know, at least once a day, several times a week. Well, and I do want to put in a plug here for the city water department. They have been one of the few bright spots in this whole situation. They have been delivering us uh, water uh, three times a week in large jugs. And you're right, it's difficult to, to lug them upstairs. But we are grateful for the help we've received. Unfortunately, at the hearing yesterday, a joint statement was made uh, by the city and the um, uh, Angela Smith, representing the landlord, um, the, the city delivery of water could now cease and the landlord would take over those duties. And we know in the past that the landlord hasn't been very good about you know, shouldering the duties that they should be. Now, the, the next date is uh, March the 8th, which is the latest order to repair the plumbing in your building. I mean, that's that's now putting us at uh, a quarter of the year that you haven't had water in your building. What happens next? Yeah. Well, that's not exactly true. March 8th is a separate hearing at the Landlord-Tenant Board for um, eviction notices that the tenants were allegedly given, uh, but we which we actually weren't. And that's a whole other story. But what the city ruled yesterday was that the, the Property Standards Committee, um, which heard the landlord's appeal, will now meet within 45 days. And based on the decision that we get at the Landlord-Tenant Board, we'll then decide how to proceed. So we're looking at potentially another 45 days before the city even meets to decide what to do with us. Wow. And uh, following that, uh, there's no guarantees uh, about the speed with which uh, anything can be done. Well, da- David, we're going to have to leave it there, and we'll try our best to stay on top of this and uh, and make sure people know what's going on there. It's absolutely outrageous, and uh, I thank you for your time. Yes, thank you. Thank you for, very much for having me. David Galvin is one of the tenants of uh, 1082, uh, 1083 Main Street East, that is. Uh, they've been out without water for at least nine weeks now. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. There is an all-too-common scam bilking caring people out of their savings. It's the grandparent scam. And uh, Dave and Georgia Bartolotta have come forward in the hopes of raising awareness so that you don't fall prey as well. Because sadly, it happened to them. 
and they've been good enough to join us on the line now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I, I'm so sorry that this happened to you, but uh, I, I'm very uh, grateful that you've come forward and that you're willing to talk about it. Well, I think that the total purpose is to try and educate others because we initially never thought that we'd ever get caught. But when people play with your emotions, uh, funny things happen. Well, and that's it. I mean, they, they called. Did they have actually the name of your grandchild? Uh, we're not sure about that because my wife answered the phone initially and she may have said when she was talking to this supposed person, um, no, Jackson, why would you do this? And so I think they probably picked it up from there. Yeah, and and they were able to uh now this is in the grandparent scam we should say so that people are aware because that is uh, what we're hoping to do here. Um there are scammers who call say grandma I'm in a lot of trouble here um and I need money because I've I'm in trouble with the law. Well, in our case it was that my grandson had uh been out driving on his way to the pharmacy, was on his phone and rear-ended another vehicle that uh, supposedly again had a pregnant lady who uh, hit her stomach on the steering wheel, was rushed to the hospital, and there was a witness to all of this, and uh, my grandson was arrested. And the person that we talked to on the phone, both of us, because she ultimately handed me the phone, um, the person we spoke to sounded exactly like our grandson. Wow. And and they really ratchet up all of the emotions. I mean, it's not just that he's in an accident. He's in an accident with, a, a, and the woman in the car is pregnant. I mean, they really ratchet it up, don't they? Well, yeah, exactly. As I said, you know, emotions take over and intelligence takes a back seat. So. Yeah. And uh, so what was the money going to be used for? Uh, It was supposedly bail money. It was to, I think my wife had mentioned, oh, Jackson, you've got an exam this afternoon. You know, what are we going to do? And so they picked up on that part. And uh, so they wanted to get him, you know, sort of release him and not spend uh, the night in jail and get him so that he could still write his exam that afternoon. And, George, I think one of the things that these scammers count on is the fact that most people have not been involved with the legal system in any way, shape, or form, and they don't realize that most of the time you don't actually have to put up bail money. No, and that, unfortunately, uh, yes, has now come to the forefront, obviously. But the thing is, when they tell you this stuff and your emotions are involved, and in my case, my stomach was flipped, you know, so that was kind of the purpose of handing Dave the phone when this lawyer supposedly came on the line. And it's just a a heart-wrenching feeling for any grandparent, and I'm sure everyone out there that's a grandparent that loves their grandchildren would react, you know, feel the same way, like, oh, my God, we got to do something, right? All I could think of was his future. Like, he's a youngster. He's got his, you know, driver's license he's getting. He's got, you know, school ahead of him. He's a, a terrific athlete with scholarships in the future. And how would this all impact? And this is kind of all going through your mind. And so your brain isn't clicking in, like, 
you know, like, oh, my gosh, how can we let something like that happen to him? We'll get the money. You know, we'll do what we have to do to get him out of the situation. Well, you know, we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, but one of the amazing things to me is that at some point, um, your spidey sense, if I can put it that way, started tingling. You knew something wasn't quite right here. And the person who came to your door to collect the money, um, you actually had the presence of mind to take a photo of them. Correct. Yes. Yes. And I was trying to follow him down the street as well. And this supposed lawyer had Dave call me back. So they must know how to manipulate everybody to that extent. Because they had forewarned me about at the bank not to tell the person, the cashier, if she asks you a question you can't tell her, you're under a gag order. Gag order being the big scary thing I think that we were all, I was dealing with anyway. Yeah, but you were able to call your grandson and find out that this was all fake. Yeah, but we did that after the fact. And, you know, there were a lot of red flags that we should have picked up on. But again, as I say, and I, and I blame it on emotions. Um, you know, once these things take place, you're not thinking clearly. No. And, you know, especially at our age, uh, you know, we're not as sharp as we used to be. <laughs> and well, anyways, I bet you're pretty sharp up. now, though, Dave. <laughs> We're real sharp well, I want to make sure that other people know exactly what we went through, and hopefully this will help somebody in the future. Well, I really appreciate you being so public about it. It's not an easy thing to admit that uh, you've had no, to go through an experience like this, but thank you so yeah. much for joining us this afternoon. Well, we appreciate uh, your position in this and letting it get out to the public. So. Absolutely. I hope you both take care. Dave and Georgia Bartolotta, um, victims of the grandparent scam, and they're hoping it doesn't happen to you as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. An event is set for tomorrow night at Mohawk College that's going to pull the veil back on human trafficking. It's a term that can actually mean different things to different people. And while you may have heard about different aspects of it in the news, tomorrow's event will focus on the root causes and ripple effects. It's being held at the McIntyre Theatre from 6 until 7.30 p.m. Joining us now is one of the two key speakers, Marissa Kokros, who's the executive director of Aura Freedom International. Thank you for joining us today, Marissa. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. There's a reason why this event is happening at Mohawk College, and it has to do with the demographic that is most commonly the victim of human trafficking. Yes, we are going to be speaking to the Indigenous Student Services Group at Mohawk College, and one of our guest facilitators and one of our advisors, Mel Compton, will be joining me to um, really unpack the, the root causes of why Indigenous youth are particularly targeted by traffickers here in Canada um, and, and, in, and beyond, actually. So, yeah, we are we're really looking forward to this event. And can you give us um, some of the reasoning behind why it's the Indigenous population, why it's women of this age range? Yeah, of course. I mean, we always, in the anti-trafficking space, we always like to say anyone can be trafficked, and that is true. I've worked with survivors from, let's say, quote-unquote, affluent neighborhoods and, and all kinds of demographics. So we want to be careful, careful also about uh, stereotyping, of course. But Indigenous women and girls make up a large uh, proportion of human trafficking survivors. They're... Um, 
you know, there are, there are many, many factors. And of course, a very short interview, you can't unpack all of them. But traffickers will try and fill a need. Try and fill a need that the victim or survivor uh, needs filled. And when we look at Indigenous youth, they are overrepresented, let's say, in child welfare. And so there is a direct pipeline from kids in care to um, kids who are sexually exploited. And so the overrepresentation of Indigenous children in care who have been, been apprehended from their families and, and the effects of the ongoing genocide of Indigenous peoples, we can see that the overrepresentation of Indigenous youth in care leads to the overrepresentation of Indigenous women and girls in the sex trade. Um, a trafficker will try and get, you know, during the luring and grooming stage, they will get through a crack, quote unquote, in the surface of the victim that they are trying to exploit, whatever that crack may be, whether they come from a marginalized community, whether they have unmet basic needs like uh, money and food, whether they come from a child, uh, whether they have a childhood experiences um, that have harmed them. Um, whatever that need may be, they're going to exploit that. And so when we look at Indigenous youth in Canada um, and the ongoing effects of colonialism, they are definitely targeted by traffickers. And so it's, it is a group that we do a lot of awareness with, our, our team. Um, and it, it is a group that needs to be uplifted and needs to be empowered to um, live lives free of violence and, and lead dignified, healthy lives. It's really hard to traffic someone who is empowered. It's really hard to traffic and exploit someone who's enjoying a good life of health and wellness. Of course, no one likes perfect, but um, it, it's really hard to exploit someone who um, whose needs are being met. And so that's why the awareness is key and that's why the, the prevention is key. And that's why we focus on root causes. Yeah, the luring and grooming stage, um, is that, does that take, is that a very gradual process uh, over a period of time? It is a process over a period of time. I've, I've worked with young girls who have gone through about a year of grooming. So it's not always very quick, but we do find the trends are that it's getting faster and faster. So it, it is a very calculated process. There are steps, and you can look at those on our Human Trafficking Info Hub on our website on orafreedom.org. But it is. It is a very calculated process. First, they target someone to exploit. Um, you know, generally, tar- traffickers will target someone who is facing inequities. They might have low self-esteem. They may be isolated. They're experiencing an economic stressor um, and all those root causes uh, I just spoke about. Then they gain trust and info. Okay, so in that stage, they're going to learn everything they need to know uh, to use later, Um, perhaps also um, gain um, information such as um, photos and videos um, with uh, sexually explicit content, which they will use then later to to threaten that that youth and and keep them right where they are. Uh, And then they're going to fill a need. Okay, so they're going to fill, um, they identify the needs in the previous steps and then they fill them. They fill a need in a survivor's life. This makes the victim dependent on the trafficker uh, for anything from money and gifts to love and friendship. Um, and many times a trafficker might just seem like a great boyfriend or a great friend to unsuspecting friends and family because they actually look like they're providing their victims with so much support and love. So in that stage, that's the love bombing stage, right? We call that the honeymoon stage. 
Um, and some of the girls I've worked with have told me that the amount of love and attention that I've felt um, in that stage, uh, I've, I've yet to ever feel that again. Um, and so that's really, really strategic as well because then the next stage is the isolation and then the abuse begins and the course of control. Um, what we see in Hollywood is, you know, young girls chained uh, to beds and, and um, you know, tape over their mouths. And that's what we see a lot in the media as well, but that's not the way it is. The door is wide open for uh, victims to leave, but the chains are actually psychological. The chains are emotional. The chains are, are societal. Um, and, and that is exactly how the trafficker maintains control. There's a lot on course of control on our info hub as well. That's a trafficker's favorite tool is course of control. Um, and, and quite and often, yeah, and I'm, those- I'm glad that you said that it's either the boyfriend or a friend, because sometimes the, the trafficker is a woman. Traffickers can be women, and we, we, we have worked with cases where traffickers can be women, and very often, I do want to express that very often, those young ladies and women are working for the trafficker, and they've also been exploited in their life. And so they're at a stage where it's, you know, you either start recruiting others for me or else, and the or else list is very long, or else. You know, I know where your family lives or else you've been criminalized during your exploitation and you've been carrying drugs and arms for me. And now, um, you know, I, I have all this hanging over your head or else um, I hurt you or else you have to take more clients yourself. And so it is survival very often when we see, um, you know, recruitment is very often a um, is very often part of the exploitation uh, let's say journey, uh, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And I've worked, many of the girls that I've worked with um, were forced and course to recruit their peers. This event is being held at the McIntyre Theatre from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. tomorrow. Marissa Kokoros is the executive director at Aura Freedom International, one of the speakers at tomorrow night's event at Mohawk College. Thank you for your time. I'm, I wish we had more. No, thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Julie Black has, if nothing else, started some conversations after her appearance at the NBA All-Star Game to sing O Canada. In particular, it was this segment. Welcome to Toronto, Ontario native and Canada's queen of R&B, Julie Black. Oh, Canada, our home on a native land. A small change in lyrics that's had a big impact and a lot of reaction in the days since. Julie Black is joining us now. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm sure you've been pretty busy. It's my pleasure. Well, in the beginning of the pandemic, I swapped the word busy for productive. So it's been very productive. Very, very productive. Um, Let me just say, when I heard your version of the anthem, my reaction was, well, yeah. Is that the reaction you've been experiencing? Majority. I mean, the, there's, there's been some, some healthy conversation happening online and all around the world, which I'm excited about. I think that some are so attached to the anthem as it was um, and as it is without really paying attention to what it actually is saying. I, I realize that 
I was taught the anthem, I don't know, in kindergarten, and I hadn't really looked at it until the last three, over the last three years. I said, you know, let me really dissect these lyrics and see what I'm saying, singing mindlessly. I need to be really mindful and present as I'm singing this song. And that's what inspired me to swap the one word. Well, I, I remember... Uh, when I was in high school, I was in choir, and we learned the bilingual version of the national anthem, and there was pushback to that as well. Look at that. See? Always some sort of pushback. Just miserable people out there. Like, come on. Well, and the other thing is, uh, I really like that you uh, stuck with In All of Us Command, um, because, you know, when that, well, some people thought it was a change, but it's actually the original lyrics. It was changed into All Our Sons Command. Uh, during a period of war. Look at that. That's some education I didn't know about. So thank you for sharing. Well, I I did a segment on this topic off the top of yesterday's show, uh, suggesting that, you know, maybe people should ask themselves what their first emotional reaction was to our home on native land and maybe explore that emotional reaction a little bit. I love that. Ask yourself why. Sit in stillness and try to get to the root of why you are happy or why you are sad or upset or whatever the emotion is. And I think it really resonates here in the Hamilton area. Uh, As you may have heard, (laughs) we've had a few issues over the years, Um, Mm -hmm. none the least of which has been some land claims issues over at least the last 15 years, Um, water issues on Six Nations, uh, and the Mohawk Mm -hmm. Institute in Brantford being examined for unmarked graves. Look at Wow. We are literally laying in the pages of history. Uh, I think too often we don't realize that we're, we have an opportunity to go through life and write stories, rewrite history, re, you know, think forward in what we want the future to look like for those coming behind and those who are here right now. Like it's not good enough for me to just to start studying the history and not realizing that I'm actually a part of what will be history. Well, and and speaking of history, this is another point that I was making yesterday, and I've made um, at different times over the last several years. um, One of the things with regards to the land claim issue, with regards to Six Nations and some development that's been going on um, around the Brantford area, is something called the Haldeman Proclamation. And it was was, uh, the British government at the time, uh, two Six Nations, Uh, in gratitude for their support during war. And it says, from the mouth to the source of the uh, Grand River, six miles on either side is dedicated and perpetually native land. Wow. Look at that. Mind-blowing. And and that is, you know, the the basis on which some of the the problems have occurred. Um, I, I like people, and something that I've noticed over the last several years, probably because there have been so many issues that have come to the fore that have made people stop and think in this area, um, is that there has been a change of attitude. At least, you know, not wholesale, not everybody, but more people are willing to sit up and really think about some of the issues involved here and perhaps a bit of empathy. How would I feel? If if right. if the shoe were on the other foot, how would I feel? It's so interesting because a friend of mine, actually Cardinal Official, hey, we were talking it through, and he said, "Imagine you have a beautiful house, you know, a mansion you worked hard for, and someone just puts you in the attic and and, and closes it down, and then has this big party and says, hey, tells everyone this is their mansion.' 
and you know let you come down sometimes to eat, but then put you right back up in the mansion in the attic. And it's just you know just something to think about. You know, I think sometimes when it's when it's not associated with our culture, or it just seems so far away, like what's going on in, in, you know, in Turkey or Syria, what's going on at the time with the Haiti hurricanes. It's like, it's like, oh, it's far away. It doesn't really touch us. People should try a different set of shoes on every once in a while. Exactly. Exactly. Try a different set of shoes on. We are all one human, one human race and understanding that had this been my own people, I would be devastated and I would be celebratory to hear somebody else think of my culture and my race and my nation as, you know, valuable and tell the truth that this is indigenous land that we are on. It's in, you know, what happened. It wasn't a well, a long thought out thing. It was something I, I could discuss with uh, a few indigenous friends, one being a manager, somebody on my team, Roy Perot. And when I could feel the energy of, Wow! Imagine if this would be this is acknowledged even one time. Because without truth, there's no reconciliation. Everyone's got truth and reconciliation, but the truth isn't being told as of yet or believed all the way. That's that's a really important. I, I think we are starting to uh, to come to that, uh, and, and sadly, it has taken uh, the unmarked graves at residential schools. I think to really bring that home to people. Exactly. And, you know, what's interesting for me, five years ago, I defended a book on um, on Canada Reads called The Merrill Thieves by Cherie Demoline, and an Indigenous author. And at that time, the, the, uh, the, Pope, the Pope was not trying to offer an apology to Indigenous Canadians. And this clip happened, and it went viral, and it was about that moment. Fast forward five years later. You know, just recently, here they are finding the jaw of children. They're, they're, they, they're more unmarked graves. This is it, on this week. Like, I couldn't have planned this. So this is why I want people to understand that my there's no intention. There's no, there isn't any self-serving intention here. I literally followed my gut, my intuition. Call it woman's intuition, but something said to me, this is the moment. And not to mention, this is the largest stage to sing the Canadian anthem ever because the Super Bowl doesn't do an anthem, a Canadian anthem. So where else would this be, be possible? And it certainly, seems, it, it certainly seems to have had that effect. Julie, I'm sorry that we're out of time, but I wanted to thank you for joining us today and for starting a few conversations that maybe need to be started. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the support. Uh, Julie Black uh, on her version of the Canadian National Anthem at the NBA All-Star Game. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A new federal program has been announced at Mohawk College. It's called Quick Train Canada. It's a program to help people get micro-credentials over the next 18 months to help those who are currently employed move into the green economy. CHML's Lisa Poleski caught up with Paul Armstrong, Chief Operating Officer with Mohawk College. It's built around a coalition of colleges, SAGEPs and institutions from across Canada called Canadian Colleges for Resilient Recovery. And Mohawk College is the founding partner. So it was a 
a goal we had about two years ago to look at how we could bring in partner institutions from across the country with unique and different strengths all related to helping support our transition to sustainability and reduce carbon uh, and how we could then use the local strengths that we all possess to create a pan-Canadian response. And so we focused originally on training, but we're also looking at opportunities to build pan-Canadian op- uh, responses in the areas of applied research as well. Okay, and so um, from what I understand, there's about 39 programs that are available starting today, and just wondering if you can speak to what those are and what you're hoping to add going forward. So you're right, so we have launched, th- so. Part of the whole coalition model was to draw on existing programs that our partners had. So we were able to launch 39 micro-credentials very quickly. We're targeting over 3,000 learners within those first 39. These are programs that could range anything from uh, battery, electric battery storage and maintenance to sustainable agriculture techniques, um, how to manage and run clean buildings like the Joyce Centre for Partnership and Innovation here at Mohawk. How do we provide those new skills that people will need? There's programs launched around modelling uh, for sustainable construction techniques. So we're, there are five sector areas that we're targeting and uh, the first 39 are spread almost kind of uh, equally across those five sectors. The next 26 will again expand in all of the five industry areas and for the, there are two other rounds of micro-credentials we'll bring on and we are now in the process of re-engaging with all of the industry partners um, around what the content and what the needs are. So, so what, is the, uh, what have the conversations been like with the industry partners? Um, are, are they, obviously they might be receptive to this, but just wondering what kind of input they have had uh, in the process to date. So colleges and institutions across Canada we're working with have very strong alignment. So a lot of the uh, micro-credentials that had already been developed and have now been deployed were built completely upon the needs of industry in those areas. So strong engagement. Our National Industry Advisory Council has had a number of uh, sessions in which they provided areas of greatest need, which helped us define where the curriculum will be. And we're now looking at trying to dive a little deeper uh, with larger groups of employers within each industry sector to define where the training needs will be for the next micro-credentials to be developed. And one of the things that uh, is unique about this program is that there's no cost. There's no cost to the person who is taking the program. Um, and this is something that Mohawk College has been in, active in for, you know, we've seen City School has yes. been a really successful source. Just wondering if you can speak to the importance of providing training at no cost to the learner. So from, from a learner perspective, we, we, we need to reduce barriers and make it easy for them, not just the learner, but also for industry as well. And so uh, industry is going to benefit because they're going to have, be able to train their workforce at no cost to them. The learners are going to get the opportunity to get upskilled and applied skills and knowledge in areas that are going to make them uh, more employable, hopefully moving them into maybe higher levels of employment within their same employer, maybe moving from one sector that had been particularly impacted into a sector which is growing. And so the impact on the learner is uh, going to be very powerful from their ability to, to from an earnings perspective on, and they don't have to worry about trying to come up with the investment uh, to get the opportunity to learn. And what are the, I was just looking at the website about the ones that are specifically offered at Mohawk College. Could you just kind of touch on those those particular ones? 
So at Mohawk College, we're offering a series of on, on modeling, uh, building modeling, um, which is all about how do you uh, develop opportunities to understand how buildings operate, um, how the energy efficiency um, could be improved, how it could be changed, how do you design the building. So there's a series of credentials uh, in that area that are Mohawk's contribution right now. And um, I, I don't know if you can tease what might be coming forward, or is that, is that still something that's in the planning phase right now? So right now, uh, for Mohawk or for, for the coalition, we're uh, in the next set of 26. We have a couple new ones that will come on board for Mohawk um, to deliver. One is a partnership that we'll be developing with uh, BCIT around electric vehicles, battery maintenance, battery storage. Um, and so part of the coalition is also to look at what might be offered in another jurisdiction that could be used locally and then how do we deploy that so um, anyway we're, we're still sort of working through that but uh, yeah. par- partnerships are going to be key to the next level of the next types of credentials that are offered yeah for sure um, I think that yeah those were all my questions is there anything else that you wanted to add just you know as we wrap up I, I think from a just from a, an overall sort of perspective of society that this is a really effective efficient model colleges and the partners we have do a really great job in their own communities around meeting local workforce needs but often it's very aligned locally even though the needs may be the same in other parts of the country and so in traditional models Everybody would have had to develop, and there would That's have been costs associated with the development That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, programs, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. We're in a very word. efficient manner, being able to take the strengths of one and then deploy it without those costs that we would have normally had around new development and new programs in a way that can happen very quickly. So it's a very efficient way. It's a very effective way. It's very much based on needs and communities, but it draws across, uh, you know, opportunities through the entire country. That's CHML's Lisa Poleski with Paul Armstrong, the Chief Operating Officer of Mohawk College. Wanted to take a couple of minutes to thank everybody who helps to put the show together. Radio is a team sport. You don't do it alone. First and foremost to Will Erskine for setting everything up, as well as a little bit of hand-holding here in there. He is excellent at what he does. And to Will Weber, our technical producer on Hamilton today, for keeping me on track and on time. Well, sort of. Believe me, this show could not happen without them. I also want to thank you for your time and attention, and hopefully we've given you a few things to think about. Scott Thompson is due back tomorrow for everyone. On Hamilton Today, I'm Shona Thompson. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.